Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Everyone knows perfectly well that nice guys don't always finish first. But people don't like the idea of bad guys finishing first all the time. One really simple way to think about what happened during the financial crisis is that good things happened to bad people and bad things happened to good people. Structured products. Noun, investment products structured to be profitable to the firms that sell them and incomprehensible to the clients who buy them. Central bank, noun, a group of economists who believe that their current forecasts will turn out to be accurate, even though their past forecasts have been unreliable, that their present policies will succeed, even though their past policies have failed, that they can prevent inflation from occurring next time, even though they didn't prevent it last time, that they can foster lower unemployment in the future, even though their practices worsened it in the past, and so forth. You should now be able to answer this riddle. What's the difference between a central banker and a weather vane? They both turn in the wind but only the central banker thinks he or she determines which way the wind blows. Those definitions, courtesy of the Devil's Financial Dictionary, brainchild of Wall Street Journal investing columnist Jason Zweig, one of my all-time favorite bylines in financial journalism. We have them here for the hour. Lucky you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, Proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years. Located at the top of Carytown, and you will certainly see me there four, five, six times a week, partaking in the hot breakfast bar, eating at the beat. Visit them in Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. And by Health Warrior, a local Richmond brand that is one of the fastest growing national food companies. Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bars, make snack food powerful by using superfoods as the first ingredient. The first product they put out, the Health Warrior Chia Bar, I adore. I must eat six or seven of the mango and apple cinnamon varieties every week. Highly recommended. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. Joining me here at NPR's New York City studios opposite Bryant Park is none other than Jason Zweig, a three-decade veteran of Forbes, Money Magazine, and now the Wall Street Journal. He's won the Loeb Award. He's an accomplished author, gentleman, scholar, mensch. How are you, sir? I'm great, Robin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, at least on your C-list. I've been badgering you for years to come on this show. It's a pleasure to be here. Now that you took care of all the big names and, you know... The book is still out there in syndication, so I'm yeah. flattered that you, you made it. I'm delighted to be here. Tell me, sir, uh, you started in financial journalism proper, you said March of 87, roughly? Yep, that's right. When did you first become a financial journalism? When did you have that aha moment like, gosh, you know, uh, so many of us are liberal arts majors, English majors and everything. When did it occur to you that, geez, you know, I can uh, go toe to toe with these masters of the universe and end up... Uh, bludgeoning them with their own jargon. <laughs> well, that's a bunch of questions all at once. So, And what is the meaning of life? So, well, we'll get to that in a few minutes, I think. I, I had, I think I had a couple of different epiphanies. One was uh, before I arrived at Forbes magazine in, in March 1987, I was working at Time magazine for a couple of years. And I'm pushing hard to try to get ideas into the magazine. Wait, was this when Time Magazine still had a drink cart at close? Yes, that's correct. White glove service? Uh, yeah, it was uh, fruit, cheese, <laughs> all of that stuff would come around you, Friday evening. Can you imagine Time Inc. publishing yeah. was a profit right. center back that's in the right. day? Actually, my favorite moment 
Not to digress, mind you, but my favorite moment was when an editor at Time magazine on the 23rd floor asked me to FedEx a document to a Time magazine editor on the 24th floor. Oh, my gosh. And when I said, why don't I just take it from you and go up the elevator one flight, he said, no, I want to make sure it gets there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So those were the days. But in any case. And you uh, had an expense account? But of course. And free sodas. Yes, all of that. So wow. so my I think when it hit home that financial journalism wasn't just about expense accounts and um, wasting the shareholders' money. It was I'd been at Forbes for a few weeks and I noticed suddenly that people would take my story ideas and they thought they were worth printing. And um, I sort of took off and ran with it. Um, and had a lot of fun. And then about four years into it, Jim Michaels, the editor at Forbes, Forbes, the legendary, crusty, terrifying editor of Forbes, asked me to become the mutual funds editor. What's a mutual fund? A mutual fund... Well, hand me the book, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're in this post-apocalyptic yes. phase, I mean, uh, can you right. imagine? Yeah. Back in the day, Peter Lynch would go on TV and tell you yep, to buy what you right. knew. So a mutual fund, for our younger readers, <laughs> um, mutual fund, noun, a fund that is not mutual. Its investors share all risks equally, whereas its managers share all fees exclusively. But in any case, uh, I became the mutual funds editor at Forbes, and I don't know, in the first few weeks of that job, I got more mail from readers than I'd gotten in the six-plus years I had been in journalism at that point. And I suddenly realized people really care about their portfolios, maybe more than they should, but they care. Was this after the crash of 87? This was in, uh, er, this was in early 1992. Wow. So back in the day when you actually had to call an 800 number and wire money to a place and wait yeah. for the, the NAV to print at, you know, 5.30 p.m. Yeah, that's right. And, that's uh, right. you know, front five, five, five uh, share classes with different sales loads and everything. Yeah, this was just at the beginning of the complexification of mutual funds. Uh, historically, they had been really simple. Um, and they were just starting to get all junked up with different fees and other complexities. And it was a really exciting time to be writing about that industry because it was changing very fast. And um, it was almost, with hindsight, almost in its infancy. And then this was even before the Michigas of uh, the tech bubble and everybody becoming really interested in investing and picking out growth managers. And we in the magazine industry, I was at Smart Money. I think mm-hmm. you were at Money later on. Mm-hmm. They talk about the thud factors of the issues, right? You could throw them down. They were like throw yep. phone books. Yep. Uh, and we often had to put out double issues because there was so much interest right. and so much attendant um financial advertising and technology advertising that as recently as the year 2000, mm-hmm. the future was so bright for financial journalism and uh, the financial services industry, the mutual fund yeah. industry, uh, and to think kind of 15, 16 years later how post-apocalyptic everything is. That's right. And you know, I can still remember, Robin, thinking back to 1999 and 2000, I remember opening Money Magazine one day when we got the first issues that came off the press that month, and I just happened to turn to my column, and the ad associated with my column 
was for a fund that was promoting its 150% return over the past 12 months. And the only language in the ad, other than the little footnote, was, any questions? Oh. Question mark. And I slammed the magazine down and I said, yeah, I have one. (laughs) Why the hell are you running this ad? Yeah. It used to be a cash cow for the the magazine division, which itself was a cash cow for Time Warner. I remember, um, you know, this is a little inside baseball, but they'd say People Magazine and Money Magazine were the cash cow bookends of this industry. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I recall this because I came to the industry, it was... Believe it or not, um, March of 2000. <laughs> that was the only time where you could find help wanted ads for financial journalism. Nice, nice timing. Like I had my choice between Forbes, Fortune, Smart Money. Forbes is like, yeah, you know, we'll give you a Metro card and pay you $12,000 a year. Do you know that there are these companies that can subdivide living rooms? Yeah, we have an editor here, a reporter, researcher will give you the contact. You'll just have to slum it for five or six years and maybe you'll get a chance to be a staff editor. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was at the same time, uh, obviously we're on the precipice of this epic uh, financial collapse and the growth bubble and the growth at any mm-hmm. price bubble yeah. kind of imploding and journalism itself, financial journalism. I think back to that time, can you imagine that uh, people, readers out there would wait for stock tips from a monthly magazine? Yep. Um, and one of my coworkers at Smart Money Magazine had a revelation. She said she was on the uh, 104 bus in Manhattan and saw someone take out the issue in a uh, 3x5 card and write down stock tickers from her article. And she's like, Farzad, I don't know what I'm doing. I just called a couple of analysts and this guy's actually going to invest. And So anyway, in hindsight, you know, it, it's just really amazing that mm-hmm. that was an industry not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the famous anecdote about Joe Kennedy and the shoeshine boy. Well, do you know how it happened to me, that mm-hmm. anecdote? No kidding. I kid you not. December 1999, I was working at Goldman Sachs. I met with a colleague in New York who's like, you need to try this Chinese restaurant, Shunli Palace. Um, it's like, they have this this dish. It like, takes 24 hours to prepare. So we go there and we sit down and we ordered the dish in advance and we sit down and we're ready to pay the, the tab for dinner. And the waiter walks a couple of paces and walks back with the credit card sleeve and starts saying something to us that we cannot understand. I'm like, well, I don't understand. It says American Express on the credit card sleeve. Take it back. Swipe it. So he goes back again, laughs, maybe takes eight paces and comes back. Um, and he tries to ask us something. I was like, I don't understand. Sir, Mater D, Mater D, can you come here, please? So the guy in the tux comes to our table. I was like, I don't understand. He didn't swipe the credit card. This is a corporate Amex. It says American Express on the sleeve. So these two guys huddle. I kid you not, this happened to me five yards away and both of them laugh hysterically and he comes back to us this was his accent he would like to know what you think of the Qualcomm stock (laughs) I kid you not that happened it was December 1999 at Shun Lee and that was a moment it was like one of those Joe Kennedy moments or you know Bernard Baruch like this happens to people there was that Brazilian stock picking cabbie Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a a crazy season there were lots of fireflies in Central Park Right, every the birds were chirping oats to the new economy, and it was such a sell signal. Like, yeah. get out! Yeah, yeah. And at that point, I see in your reading that you're getting all of these calls from growth-minded managers and investors and day traders, and it's like, you need to get your head out of the sand, you, you know, Dodd mm-hmm. and Graham old schooler. You need to get with the new yeah. paradigm. That's right. That's right. It was, you know, one of the most challenging things about. Um, being either an investing writer or 
simply a, an investor with a long-term plan in a time like 1999 and early 2000 was just staying focused on the fact that uh, just because everybody else was doing something new and different didn't mean that the old ways couldn't work any longer. It just meant they weren't working for a while. And um, I remember in January of 2000, uh, um, doing a quick interview with Warren Buffett about something sort of unrelated to the stock market as a whole. And he had set the ground rule that I could only ask him about the thing I had asked him about. But at the end, of course, I couldn't resist. So I said, you know, everybody's out there saying you're a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you feel about that? Well, we're okay buying Gillette and Coca-Cola. If we're going to be dinosaurs, you know, for two years, okay, yeah. with dividends and cash flows. And what he said <laughs> was not, not so dissimilar, but a little better, I think. He said, I know what will happen. I just don't know when. And that's what you, you hear for time immemorial. The mm -hmm. markets can remain illogical for longer than you can remain solvent. Right. Yep. Which Keynes probably didn't say, but that's all right. We'll, it's, it's a really good expression, and we'll, we wish he said it. At what point in your career did you, did you find your true north? Did you find truth, whether it was passivity or you, you talk about mean reversion kind of being your, your north star, that all good things must come to an end, all big bubbles must deflate, when when and where was that aha moment? Was it a case study? Was it a was it an article? Was it an interview with someone? Because again, we're not we're not financial professionals, and mm -hmm. this is the paradox. But yeah, I think the real jolt that I had, Robin, was in early 1994. Um, I went and I spent a day with a fund manager named Worth Brunchen, who once was quite well known, but has long since been forgotten. He died a few years ago. He was a very well-known mortgage bond fund manager, and he ran a fund called uh, Piper Jaffray Institutional um, Mortgage Income Fund um, out of Minneapolis. And he had the most phenomenal track record, I think, of just about any bond fund manager in the country at that time, with the possible exception of Bill Gross at PIMCO. And Every month, this fund would go up a little bit. And in no month did it ever go down. And if you plotted its performance, it looked like almost a perfectly smooth line sloping upward at a 30-degree angle for as far as the eye could see from the moment he started the fund. And it, it just seemed to just go in, project into the indefinite mm -hmm. future. Um, by every statistical measure... Um, sharp ratio, you know, standard deviation, beta, every conceivable way of measuring a fund's performance, this fund had generated extraordinarily good returns with incredibly low risk. And I spent the day with him. He was very impressive. And I went back and I wrote a glowing profile. This is when I was at Forbes. This was at the very beginning of 1994. And Two or three weeks later, the Fed did its... Uh, its blindsiding rate hikes. Its blind, started its mm -hmm. blindsiding rate hikes. And within five or six weeks, the Fed had raised interest rates by at least a percentage point, maybe 125 basis points. I, I don't remember the exact details. 
But in a matter of weeks, the fund went down, I think, 27%. Wow. And it just completely blew to bits. And my editor, to his credit, said, go back and figure out why you blew it. He didn't say, go figure out why the fund lost money. He said, figure out why you blew it. And um, I realized two things. One, that I had overlooked some warning signs. Uh, I had, in those days, I had access to a Bloomberg machine, and I had uh, sort of downloaded the entire portfolio of the fund. And I had a, an excellent textbook on mortgage-backed securities, and I sort of picked all the major holdings apart. And when I had asked Mr. Brunchen about one of his top holdings, he had misdescribed it to me. Mm. And I immediately spotted it and said, no, this security does the opposite of what you just said, doesn't it? And then he sort of called in his deputy portfolio manager and they caucused and turned out, yeah, actually he had described one thing, but he owned the 180 degree opposite the inverse of that security. Um, and I just sort of ignored that. And I said, well, complicated securities, complicated portfolio. You know, he can't master every detail. I guess it's okay. And I just forgot about it. Um, but the much more important thing and the lesson I've tried to keep with me in all the intervening years is that um, I believed my own um, baloney, hmm. to use the technical term, because I spent two or three weeks becoming an instant expert on mortgage-backed securities, which are, of course, are intensely complicated, and um, got to the point where I actually knew a fair amount about them. And in hindsight, what I realized is that I was too impressed with the fund manager, but more importantly, I was way too impressed with myself. And the biggest mistake I had made was not recognizing the limits either of his ignorance or, more importantly, of mine. And I think the thing that all investors need to bear in mind is that to have statistical confidence that a professional investor, a money manager, an investment strategy, a particular security, stock, a bond, a mutual fund, an ETF, to have a high degree of confidence that what you're observing is skill and not luck, typically you need 50 to 80 years of track record to be sure what you're looking at is real skill. And we all blind ourselves to that fact, and we leap to conclusions that just aren't warranted. And that was really a sort of a watershed discovery for me that that um, I could be my own worst enemy as I was researching an investment idea and that the real holy grail is humility. But also I think in that case to know that this guy may not have known what he was talking about. Which we, we, we kind of get blinded. We become starry-eyed as financial journalists. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to cite the case of Enron, but Jesus, it's so redolent, right? It's so it's so pungent because if you recall, this was like the most footnoted uh, uh, cash flow statement in history. Yeah. And even Wall Street analysts, it was just a giant diffusion of responsibility. Uh, but there was one or there were one or two reporters out there, maybe egged on by a short seller, who dared say, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting because the warning signs were there. You're totally right, Robin. 
they were there, uh, but it's really easy to ignore them because humans are inefficient information processors, and we have to take shortcuts because um, we're all busy and we're all lazy, and that applies to everyone, no matter how skilled or brilliant or talented we might be. Um, well, this is the separation of labor. This is why you hire a fund exactly. manager in the first place. Precisely to right. See that, you know, to even to even read in, in, in your column, which I love, The Intelligent Investor, that everybody out there would take for granted that um, their money manager has a fiduciary interest. But even in 2016 America, your money manager, your financial manager can be a marketer first and foremost and yeah. does not have to put your interest ahead of his own. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, and... You know, I think the you know one of the big dangers that we get into is uh, what psychologists like to call the halo effect. And you know, if I think back to this fund I was describing earlier, this mortgage-backed bond fund, you know, the stunning return at the equally stunning low risk that the fund had generated in the past just through this halo over all the other aspects of the operation. Right. So that, you know, once you evaluate the trade-off between risk and return and you find it that positive, your mind then becomes predisposed to interpreting all other new evidence in the same positive light. Hmm. So when he confessed that he thought an inverse super floater was actually a, a super floater, well. I was like, oh, you know, he. I mean, he's put together such a great portfolio. How could he possibly keep well, track of everything? explained by the flux capacitor theorem. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> My guest is Jason Zweig, who writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. You must get his diabolical little treatise, The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Jason, let, let's come to the here and now. You uh, flicked at that 94 bond bear very briefly. And I talked to a lot of people on the street who say, generationally, no one on Wall Street these days, no bond trader has truly experienced a bond bear market. Mm -hmm. And so millions of Americans have kind of been lulled into this false security that you cannot lose money in fixed income simply because it just doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. It's been like uh, waiting for Godot for the bond market to collapse, for inflation to come here. And every year it starts, you know, bond rates creep up, treasuries creep up, and then the world economy takes another dive and everybody jumps into the safety of U.S. treasuries, thus bailing out the last round of excess. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, Robin. I mean, it has been 22 years since we've had a, a true... And people forget, some some shops on Wall Street failed and were close to failure then. That's correct. I mean, it put Goldman Sachs in significant distress, the likes of which it didn't visit again until 2008. That's right. And before that... There was another, uh, there, you know, there was a severe break in the bond market in the spring of 1987. In fact, I started at Forbes magazine in 1987, and I like to say I started just before the first crash of 1987, which was in April, when the bond market really took a hammering well before the stock market tumbled in October of 1987. And, you know, I think it's important to put all of this in perspective. Back in uh, 1994, the bond market just took a, a, a total bloodbath, really extensive damage, particularly in mortgage-related securities, but a lot of other bond investors really suffered bad losses. And it happened earlier in 1987. And of course, in the 60s and 70s, the bond market was sort of all but 
um, wrecked in in a period of high inflation and and rising interest rates. But I don't even know what inflation is. Yeah, you know, I have a definition of it in the Devil's <laughs> Dictionary. We'll learn what it is again before long. I have no doubt. But, you know, if you've constructed a reasonably conservative, sensible portfolio, even if interest rates rise a full percentage point in a short period of time, you're not likely to lose a ton of money. You'll lose a little, but you should still have the overall safety and security that bonds provide, the ballast that they give to a diversified portfolio. But if you've been taking risks, especially if you've been taking risks without realizing it, if you're overloaded on things like bank loan funds, or sometimes they're called senior loan funds, if you have a lot of high yield bond funds, emerging market bond funds, um, various so-called unconstrained bond funds, then you might have some cause for concern. Do you devoutly believe in the efficient frontier and that kind of, you know, what they might teach you in a business school program that in a, in theory, you want to own a little bit of every possible asset on the planet, not just the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or emerging markets, but alpaca fur futures, Haas avocados, anything that zigzag frontier markets, in theory, because in practice, it would be cost prohibitive. But if you see uh, Vanguard, which has been one of the huge beneficiaries mm -hmm. of the shakeout of the last six or seven years, you can get a lot closer to approximating uh, ownership of a piece of everything around the world through their low-cost index funds. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think many investors are still under-diversified. How far you want to go in diversifying is not always an easy question to answer. Because as, as, you, as you know, when we were told and we were hit over the head with this six or seven years ago, you got to diversify aggressively into commodities. Mm -hmm. The market weight is not enough for that. You know, the, the Standard & Poor's 500 companies that own mines and, mm -hmm. and oil wells and whatnot that you need to double down, that this is the only redoubt against inflation or monetary debasement. But then something like that, that we never thought, Jason, that oil would fall below That's right. triple digits again. And yeah. here we are looking at a very mundane collapse in oil prices. Yeah. Well, and gold prices. I mean, the gold bugs must have tormented you as well. Of course. Of course. Um, you know, I, I wrote a very skeptical piece about gold um, and, of course, received, you know, hundreds of hate emails and stuff. Nothing that required me to uh, call the security department, but some of them were pretty close. And, you know, gold, I think then was $1,680 an ounce or something like that. And here we are, I guess it's at about 1125 as we speak. It's down uh, about a third. Well, I know I'm going all free association and everything, yeah. but that's kind, of, that's kind of how I roll, Mr. Well, Zweig. That's all right. What the heck does gold mean in the grand scheme of things? I'm sure you've pondered this existential question at night, right? You yeah. could tip drills with it. Uh, certain people can cap their teeth with it. What does it do for me? Does it elevate well, me? Is it like unobtainium? Is it like plutonium? It's shiny and it's called a store of value, so it's almost derivative. Because it has been a store of value since ancient times, Ergo, it must be a store of value today. Well, I, I still stand by the nickname I gave it a couple of years ago. I guess it was last year, Robin. I think it's a pet rock. And there are a lot of people out there who loved pet rocks in, back in the 1970s. They swore by them. They paid a lot of money for them. Evidently, a But pet what's wrong with schist or a nice igneous rock? You know, why must it be this destructive thing that we get from mines in West Africa or South America? What all I can tell you is that 
gold does not produce cash flows because it is not an income-producing asset. It's very difficult to value by conventional means. In fact, I would say it's not possible to evaluate it by conventional means. It's literally worth what the next person will pay for it. Um, it might make some sense to have a very, very small portion of your portfolio in it. But one of the difficulties becomes uh, you, to the extent that you make gold a very small part of your portfolio. There's no efficient way of owning it. It's not ideal. It's I not mean, ideal. These ETFs, which by the way, there's been an explosion, as you know, even in the ETF industry of of structured products of double inverse levered products of of commodity ETFs that reset at a peculiar time. So anybody out there buying, say, a USO or a GLD gold ETF thinking that they're getting, you know, pure, unadulterated, unhydrogenated exposure is right. getting something very different, is actually yeah. getting a derivative. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think the difficulty with commodities as an investment is that they're, they probably aren't investments. Um, they might be trading opportunities at times when they've been completely trashed by the markets. And we're probably pretty close to that point right now. Uh, but when, when your typical stockbroker is pestering you on the golf course or in the grocery store trying to get you to buy a commodity fund, then that should tell you it's in favor, not out of favor. Or Mr. T going on Bloomberg television or doing the commercials for yep. these gold exchanges. Yep, or or all of those sort of third-rate celebrities you see on late-night <clears throat> TV doing info commercials for gold companies you've never heard of. Mm. All of those things are warning signs that this is a highly popular approach <laughs> rather than an unpopular one. And because commodities don't produce income, because almost all of them cost money to own. Uh, they're a very expensive way to diversify a low probability risk unless they're really unpopular. Hmm. And then the price provides some level of insurance that the asset itself doesn't really provide. The long-term return on commodities after inflation is surprisingly close to zero. And same with real estate, oddly enough, huh? Correct. It's that Jeremy Schiller long chart that goes back to the early 20th century that mm -hmm. you have a lot of people out there who have a real estate fetish. I mean, coming from an immigrant family, if I gave you a nickel for every time an Iranian relative pulled me aside and said either oil or gold, that turned out to be the top of the market. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was going to patent something for BlackRock called the Iranian contrarian relative index, <laughs> right? <laughs> Lard it up with like a one and a half percent front-loaded sales charge and everything. You just go sell it. Anytime a relative of mine calls telling me to buy something, mm. I will short that their asset. Yeah. Not a bad plan, I think. Having said all this, when you step back from it, what is, and, and you must get buttonholed at cocktail parties left and right, um, what is an optimal asset allocation? There's a Jack Bogle school of thought that believes if you're going to be invested in equities, the S&P 500 does a fine enough job for you. After all, you hear it all the time. These companies have half their revenue abroad. They have to, they're not perfect, but they do have to answer to US transparency and reporting standards. Mm -hmm. And you're just getting a lot of replication if you go and buy an emerging markets index or you buy a, a, a developed markets index. You can accomplish all this with the 500 companies in the S&P. 
Yeah, well, I think it's important, Robin, to approach asset allocation bearing in mind that it really isn't an exact science, even though a lot of people would like to pretend that it is. However, it's not just um, it's not just a, a pile of marketing baloney either. And there are some things I think we can separate this, the good sense from the nonsense. I mean, you don't need to overload on emerging markets. Uh, you know, at the at the wildest upside, emerging markets are. 25% of total global stock market capitalization. And by any reasonable measure, there are plenty less. So there's a lot of people out there saying, you should have a third or more of your money in emerging markets. The obvious question is, why? But the longitudinal evidence we do have, and again, you're probably saying that longitudinal is more like 50 to 80 years versus 30 to 40 years, does say that these companies, you're getting a significant risk premium over the United States. The stories, you're getting compensated for the fact that they're hairy stories, that they're liable to collapse in a currency crisis. Well, again, it it gets back to the point, same point we were making about commodities, which is that um, if you are a value investor, and you have the guts, or as, or as I paraphrased Benjamin Graham once, if you have the cash and the courage to run, run toward a fire, to buy assets when they're burning um, from damage rather than when they're hot from popularity. Which is far easier said than done. It's way easier said than done. And the mere fact that assets are collapsing is proof that it's easier said than done. Because if it were easy to buy them when they were cheap, they wouldn't be cheap. <laughs> like there are no atheists in foxholes, That's right? correct. So uh, <clears throat> if you look at the very long-term evidence on emerging markets, which um, Elroy Dimson and his colleagues at London Business School have done, if you go, go back for many decades, what you see is that over the full sweep of history, they don't actually offer excess return over developed markets. However, during some periods they do, and those coincide with periods when emerging markets have been destroyed by stock market collapses. Um, much like what we appear to be seeing in the early stages in China. You know, when China, if China goes down another 20, 25, 30 percent, um, it will become very attractive by historical standards, I think. Um, but just to own emerging markets in the long run is fine, but to overweight them permanently, to buy extra emerging markets just because they have that cute name, emerging markets, doesn't make sense to me. I remember 20 or more years ago, there was an article in Smart Money, and I, I don't think you had anything to do with this, that. Uh, uh, about aggressive growth funds. Oh yeah, and I know. The, I know the Putnam one really well. <laughs> and the and the article said they're called aggressive growth because they will make your money grow much more aggressively than other funds. <laughs> and I remember reading that and saying, no, they're called aggressive growth because they're a good way to destroy your money aggressively because they take excess risk that doesn't result in excess return. And if you buy on the basis of popularity, you will always end up owning too much of the expensive at just the wrong time. And so 
that's a very long answer to a short question, but I think the key to sensible asset allocation is to make sure you're framing the questions the right way. If you're deciding how much do I put in emerging markets, ask yourself what's the evidence that putting more than the market average in emerging markets pays off? And the answer is it pays off after periods of extreme popularity, not during periods of extreme popularity. And until the past year or two, emerging markets were very popular. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Jason Zweig. He writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. And he has authored this great little book that you must pick up called The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Um, Jason, do you sleep easy at night? I mean, have you, are, you, are you in a kind of a set it and forget it mode? Are you, do you like to tune out uh, the daily hullabaloo? Certainly, I mean, you're on Twitter. You're, you're hugely followed on Twitter. There are um, pop-up financial websites that make a living out of kind of live tweeting Apple's earnings calls. Mm-hmm. Um, financial television seems to be on the wane, but is there a beauty in kind of tuning this stuff out? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I... Uh... I certainly sleep well at night relative to my family's own portfolio. Um, It's uh, about as simple a portfolio as you could possibly get, and we can come back to that in a minute. Um, You know, I think it's it's hugely important for long-term investors to tune out the short-term noise. Um, You know, 99.5% of all information flow in the financial markets is noise, and maybe half a percentage of it is news. And um, if you, once you allow yourself to get bitten by the news mosquito, um, you'll be scratching that itch all the time, and it's, it's really, really unhealthy. Um, the short-term performance orientation of the professional investment community and for that matter, of the financial journalism community is is really <coughs> unhealthy for investors as a whole. What happens to those people, though, who uh, saved money, who uh, did not listen to the subprime siren calls? Uh, it seems like after the bailout started, let's say circa 2007, 2008, that they're being punished nine years after the fact. The people out there that are being told, don't go into higher yielding bond securities, cash has been uh, negative in in real inflation-adjusted terms for a while. You're being told that the stock market is um, valued high relative to its, what, what the the Schiller ratio or not. Where are you supposed to go? There's so much, as as there is at any point in time, there's so much confusion, even even after we've had a record bull run. Yep. Well, I think, you know... And where does your family put its money? You want to know. All right. So there's two questions there. So, I mean... The investing public is, despite all of Wall Street's you know propaganda to the contrary, the investing public is not stupid. Uh, the typical American household knows perfectly well what happened during the financial crisis, which is that um, the Fed had no choice. Um, the Fed had to bail out the financial system, and the people who paid the price were savers the ones who who were responsible, who did what they were supposed to do, who set aside a large portion of their 
household income every year and, and saved it and invested it conservatively and had grown accustomed to getting a decent return in the bank or on conservative securities, those people have been not just penalized, they've been punished. And the ones who were rescued and rewarded were those who were the most irresponsible. And, you know, the Fed and the Treasury Department and Congress and the administration, frankly, had no choice. And I, I agree with Warren Buffett, who's pointed out many times that if the financial system had not been bailed out, it would have gone under. And I don't think there's any doubt that we would have gone into a second Great Depression if uh, the U.S. government had not taken emergency action. But the financial system was restored on the backs of the people who were the most responsible. That's the irony. People out there saying, you know what, these companies were bailed out, but it's no sweat off my back. It's not like I was presented with an invoice for bailing out Goldman Sachs or AIG. But you were, right? It was amortized over nine or 10 years. If yes. you look at what your $10,000 should have been getting on a yep. uh, a CD or a that's savings account. Totally or what these... true. And, and based But that's what kills me. And reading your book is all this stuff is buried in the obfuscation of the jargon. That's right. When Ben Bernanke and Wall Street were calling for liquidity injections and added <laughs> liquidity, it was right. so euphemistic, right? Everything from TARP, which has an almost like an Orwellian sense, mm -hmm. should be bailout money. This yep. is bailout money. And yep, we're going to yep. have to, you know, it would have been honest if Ben Bernanke in one of his fireside chats said, we have to actually keep rates down and everybody's in this together because it's collective punishment. It's like when when that dude in your undergraduate uh, you know, dorm hallway knocks out all the lights and if nobody steps forward, they dock everybody's student account. Exactly. So Robin, let me read the definition of bailout from the Devil's Financial Dictionary. Bailout, verb, what the managers of a bank do just before they run it into the ground. Also, what the taxpayers are stuck doing to the bank afterward. Hmm. As a result, the bank's top executives will individually be hundreds of millions of dollars richer, whereas the taxpayers will collectively be billions of dollars poorer. And based on my email inbox, it's remarkable how many everyday Americans understand exactly what happened. They, they appreciate it. They realize that they were punished in order that the system could survive, and there's a huge amount of resentment and as uncomfortable as it makes me I think this goes a long way toward explaining the popularity of candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump well how should they have structured and I know this is a long time ago but it's 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 after effects I mean we're still in a period of of near emergency low interest rates we're stuck in that tar that we can't pull ourselves out of to rate normalization. How should they have done it? For example, the AIG thing was so heads I win, tails you lose. The guys who structured these products in the financial products group in, in London, their, what was it? Their their income was not disgorged. <laughs> they have gone yeah. off like, or Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers, the best I knew, he made what, three, $400 million on the company. How much has changed? Well, you know, I'm not sure that or how should we have structured it, darn it? Should the taxpayer have gotten more of AIG and Goldman Sachs' upside? I know I'm taking you into funky territory no, here. No, 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 But you are fine. unique in that you can you can go, you can volley the serve with sophisticated, purportedly sophisticated Wall Street types, but you can also turn around and hold mom and pop's hand. Yeah, I mean, I think 
the right way to think about it is that, I mean, what we didn't have in 2008 and 2009 that American society did have after 1929, which was the last comparable collapse of the financial system, what we didn't have this time around was a public hanging. And, you know, I don't mean physical violence when I use that term, but in the early 1930s, the Pecora hearings that were led by the great prosecutor Ferdinand Pecora on Capitol Hill involved hauling in one CEO after another of the most important banks in the country and just grilling them on the stand ferociously. And um, uh, the Pecora hearings were followed almost word by word on the radio and in the newspapers and all the, um, you know, uh, all the news organizations of the time. And it riveted the American public. And that kind of public catharsis would have gone a long way toward restoring a sense of balance. It's not that the terms of the bailout were so unfair. It's that there was no optical sense of justice. The typical American taxpayer, the typical American household, saw no evidence that you know, the people who ran the big banks were being shamed or expressed any sense of shame. When they were being brought before Congress and the financial crisis, what was it, the Inquiry Commission and that metaphor about mm-hmm. selling the faulty car and the car insurance, at the same time, you see, uh, the it's cliche now, the worst economic calamity since the Depression. You would think there would be enough pungency for indignation for people to go out there and and say, no, this is not fair. This is lopsided. This is even coming out of it in 2009, 2010. I remember initially there was reluctance about bonuses and, you know, you have to be uh, sanctioned uh, free of TARP to go and release your dividends again. And at some point, mm-hmm. Jamie Dimon of JPMorgan Chase, the biggest of the two big to fail banks, was like, get off my back, you know, mm-hmm. go away. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed that that still resounded at a time that unemployment was stubbornly high. To this day, even though we're told that the unemployment rate is at a um, a certain, you know, n- back to natural levels, uh, everybody out there feels that they're not gainfully employed. There's still a lot of slack in the system. And I'm sure you address mm-hmm. unemployment in your book. I mean, mm-hmm. these are substantially BS statistics. Yeah, I mean, I think what we need to realize is that people want to believe they live in a just world. I mean, everyone everyone knows perfectly well that nice guys don't always finish first. But people don't like the idea of bad guys finishing first all the time. And, you know, one really simple way to think about what happened during the financial crisis is that good things happened to bad people and bad things happened to good people. Mm. Uh, And, you know, the thrifty, responsible, diligent, disciplined, conservative saver and investor was stripped of his or her potential for return in order to bail out the irresponsible, greedy, irrational, um, selfish, reckless people who destroyed many of the biggest banks in the country and their investors. And people aren't stupid. They know that. 
They've figured that out, and they, they resent it, and that's why they still don't trust the system. So how are you translating all this to your family's personal finances? I know some, we don't like to sully our hands on, you know, as, as writers on stock tips and these things, but I find it's an interesting Rorschach question to always ask a fellow financial journalist or a fellow investor, even if I'm with, you know, like a Mohammed El Aryan or a Bill Gross or a, a money manager or a Jack Bogle. Jack, what would you do? What would you advise to your great-grandchildren right now? What would you advise to... Uh, that couple in a delivery ward across town at Mount Sinai that needs to open up a 529 is thinking T minus 18 years, but gosh, is China going to be another Japan? Are we in an epic bond debacle? There's always this element of I have to be tactically different than the next guy because surely it's not going to be the, 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 the same model of 18 years that it was for the people advising me. Well, there's, you know, there's this temptation always to say this time is different, uh, but really this time is never different. No time is really different. Uh, you know, I think one thing is pretty obvious as we look at the landscape, which is there's very little fear of inflation right now. We've, we, we've alluded to it several times since we started talking. Um, you know, the, the, there's global fear of deflation. It's, it's rampant, in fact among policymakers and central bankers. To the point that central banks, there are lots of countries that have negative interest Correct. rates at this point, that you're Correct. paying the government to warehouse your money. Exactly. And so if you're a contrarian and you're comfortable going against the grain, then um, you know one sensible approach probably is to uh, have some of your money in inflation-protected securities, treasury bonds that... Um, will perform robustly if there's unexpected inflation in the future. And at this point, almost any inflation would be unexpected. And so a so-called TIPS fund that owns these inflation-protected securities seems like a pretty attractive contrarian play to me, um, as long as you don't go hog wild with it. Do you buy that we have not had inflation? Do you buy the official stats keepers line that inflation has been non-existent for the longest time now? You know where I see inflation? Where I buy my eight pack of Dove Bars uh, soap and I find that they're getting smaller and smaller. Or your orange juice cartons that used to be 64 ounces. Right. Or your candy bars that used to be whatever they were, 12 ounces. Because these guys nominally have no pricing power to pass down to people, they they cut corners in other places. Correct. And it, that also anesthetizes the consumer to think that I'm not paying more than I used to. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think... A lot of it depends on your household's pattern of consumption. I mean, if you drive a lot, if you live in the Northeast where you heat your home with oil, um, then certainly the energy portion of your household budget has come down a lot. And maybe, maybe you are experiencing deflation. As long as you're not experiencing it in your wages at the same time, that probably feels pretty good. If you live in the Sun Belt, um, you might not have that same experience, and you may well be going through inflation in a lot of other parts of your life. So it's hard to come up with an optimal measure of inflation because every home and every family are different. But I think inflation overall probably is lower than it was years ago. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that 
reduces the demand to insure against it, and it would suggest that inflation protection is probably cheaper than it should be in the long run. Now, in closing, Jason, we have a few minutes left, but uh, when somebody's seated next to you at a bar mitzvah or a wedding or whatever it is, and, and, you know, I I love to ask the person sitting next to me, could be a proctologist, could be a sushi chef, what is the one thing I need to know about your your trade? I mean, for example, once, you know, a sushi chef told me never eat sushi on Saturday or Sunday night, (laughs) you know? This is the one thing when you, you know, at night when you're about to close your eyes and you're thinking about your career and your next stories, and by the way, you are prolific. And your editors, I have this inside information. They tell me that you pitch and deliver with wonderful economy. Like you don't mess around with the ad verbiage and the organ music like I do. You're just good and you're consistent. And that's why, you know, your readers love you. What is the one thing you wish the layman, the the mom John Q investor out there knew? Well, I guess it goes back to um, that wonderful remark that's attributed to Charles Revson, the founder of Revlon Cosmetics. Uh, I don't know the real origins of the anecdote, but as I understand it, somebody said to him, you know, what do you do? And of course, he's this cosmetics king, and he says, I sell hope in a bottle. And um, that's what the financial industry does. It sells hope in a bottle. this fund can beat the market. This stock picker is smarter than everybody else. This investment strategy can deliver higher return at lower risk. And um, I, if you need hope in a bottle, your problems are more than skin deep. <laughs> and uh, if you're tempted to fall for that kind of marketing pitch, you really should take the first step every investor has to take, which is you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, why am I so desperate to earn a higher return than the market is naturally inclined to give me? I mean, look at all of these um, public pension plans around the United States that have locked in assumptions of 8% returns going forward as far as the eye can see. Now. If they own two-thirds stocks and one-third bonds and they're expecting an 8% return, well, bonds yield 2%. So they're basically expecting something like 12, 12 or 14% out of their stock portfolios in a world where they'll be very lucky to get six. There's a lot of denial and fake it till you make it. There's a lot of denial. It is not just but, a river uh, in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> Paradoxically, something comforting in that no one knows what they're talking about when you think about it, right? That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I think the, you know, if I had to boil it down all to a single thought, it's, you know, there is no hope in a bottle. And if you're relying on it, you have to think a lot harder about who you are as an investor and why your goals aren't more realistic. But also, You have to escape magical thinking. I mean, the entire financial services industry is built on the propensity of people to believe in magic, that there's somebody out there who can do the impossible. You know, when bonds yield 2%, we're going to get you 6. We're just going to manufacture 4% a year 
out of nothing. So and when we'll Journey when Journey says don't stop believing, you're urging people do stop believing. Yeah. Well, at least stop believing in things that aren't true. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal, soulful, prolific, humble, growth at a reasonable price. Thank you for coming on, sir. My pleasure, Robin. Thanks for having me. You have to catch Jason's book, The Devil's Financial Dictionary, available on Amazon and at all fine bookstores, uh, the ones that still exist. Full disclosure, our engineers are John Valentine in Virginia and Manoli Weatherill at NPR New York City. Listen to us on NPR One, WRIR, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. We are pro forma, ex-special one-time items, adjusted for eyeballs before depreciation. Market outperforming with a near-term accretive bias going forward. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. Thank you.